Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the Sunday, February 12th reading of the Summit Daily News. My name is Lainey Bueller. A road trip to remember. A Utah man surpasses 100,000 vertical feet in a single ski day while driving across the country by Cody Jones. Many people try to ski or ride 100,000 vertical feet in a single day. But New York native and current Utah resident William Rayo took the feat to a whole new level at the end of January. Unlike most skiing stories, the beginning of Rayo's feat began in a car amongst the streets and lights of New York City, instead of on the pristine slopes of a ski resort. We currently live in Utah and we moved out from New York City, Rayo said. I was driving my girlfriend's car over in order to just have one more car over in Utah. In order to make the 2000 plus mile trip more manageable and enjoyable after the holidays, Rayo figured he would stop in Colorado along the way for a few days of skiing. It was just me, the ski gear, and all our stuff, Ryo said. I drove across the country, and I managed to get to Colorado in a little over two days. Ryo said that he then stayed with a friend in Denver for a night before heading to the Summit County area for a few days of skiing. He went to Breckenridge Ski Resort on Sunday, January 22nd, where he unknowingly logged 97,527 vertical feet without even really trying to chase any sort of mark for vertical feet. That night, Ryo said he grew inspired as he saw other people's stories of surpassing 100,000 vertical feet in a single ski day. The stories had such a big impact that Ryo decided to head further down Interstate 70 in order to go after the 100,000 vertical feet barrier at Beaver Creek Resort on Tuesday, January 24th. I thought I might as well cross over to 100, Ryo said of his thought process. I thought it was pretty cool. Ryo says he arrived at Beaver Creek Resort when the lift started turning at 8.30 a.m. and then stayed on the slopes the majority of the day. Unlike most who chase after vertical feet, Ryo did not utilize a specific strategy, like taking the lift that gains the most vertical feet or planning what number he should be at by certain points in the day. Instead, Ryo said he focused on having fun on the slopes while trying to push himself. I was just having fun, Ryo said. I was all alone and I just wanted to test myself by doing some double black diamonds for the first time. 
After enjoying his time on the mountain for the majority of the day, Ryu finally took a glance at his Epic Mix app to find himself at about 97,000 vertical feet. He extended his ski day by an extra hour or so, completed a few more runs, and ultimately passed 100,000 vertical feet before the resort closed. Ryo gained 102,704 vertical feet while riding on 12 different lifts throughout the day, never taking longer than a 15-minute break to eat or go to the bathroom. If surpassing 100,000 vertical feet in a single ski day was not impressive by itself, Ryo then got in his car and drove a little over seven hours to the Salt Lake City Airport to pick up his girlfriend. I drove seven to eight hours after that, Ryo said. I got to Salt Lake around 11 p.m. and that is when my girlfriend landed and we went to our house after that. It was a long day. The trip made for a marathon of a day, but Ryo said it was 100% worth the exhaustion and fatigue the next morning. With a mountain endurance background, Ryo said he did not really feel challenged by the escapade until the next day. The next day, it hit me, Ryo said. I guess it was the excitement of being out in Colorado skiing. Ryo said he recovered the day after before he strapped on his skis again in order to head back up to ski the mountains in Utah. Overall, he says he's glad he found a way to maximize his time in Colorado. Not only did it make for a memorable road trip, but it also expanded his skiing skills after he logged his first full ski season last year. It was pretty exciting, Ryo said, of completing a double black run at Beaver Run. I was really proud and happy to achieve that. It was one of the steepest parts that I have done, and it was super mogul-y, and I didn't fall. It was just a happy moment for me to share with myself. Ryo plans to ski throughout the rest of the season and hopes to transfer the skills he learned from skiing on the East Coast to Western ski resorts. With a ski trip in the works for March, surpassing 100,000 feet for a, a second time, maybe in the near future for Ryo. I'm thinking of going out to the Mountain West again, hopefully in March, Ryo said, and that is definitely something I am planning to do. Help reintroduce the SHRED, S-H-R-E-D Act, a federal bill aimed at bolstering Forest Service funds collected from ski areas by Robert Tan, T-A-N-N. U.S. Representative Joe Neguse, along with a bipartisan coalition of other congressional lawmakers, including Senator Michael Bennett, recently reintroduced legislation aimed at bolstering outdoor recreation by developing a framework for how national forests collect and spend some of the annual fees paid by ski areas operating within U.S. Forest Service land. 
Our bill will deliver for Colorado's mountain towns, keep ski fees local, and bring federal resources to our national forests, Nagoose stated in a February 9th social media post. Dubbed the Ski Hill Resources for Economic Development, or SHRED Act, the legislation would create a dedicated account for permit fees from ski areas collected by the Forest Service to be used on local projects within those national forest areas. Under the current proposal, the legislation would allow 80% of fees to be used on local projects and 20% to be used for assisting other national forests with winter or recreation-related needs. According to Forest Service estimates shared in a November 2nd press release from Bennett's office, the bill could generate up to $27 million in retained ski area fees to Colorado's national forests, the vast majority of those funding coming from the White River National Forest. A further breakdown of the legislation shows how those collected fees would be used by forests, with 75% of funds going directly to ski and winter-related projects, such as permitting needs, processing proposals for ski area improvements, providing information for visitors, and wildfire preparation. About 25% would be used for a broad set of year-round local recreation management and community needs, according to Bennett's office, which are listed as Special Use Permit Administration, Visitor Services, Trailhead Improvements, Facility Maintenance, Search and Rescue Activities, Avalanche Information and Education, Habitat Restoration, and Affordable Workforce Housing. The bill, which was introduced in the U.S. House of Representatives in 2021, initially gained some momentum but failed to advance to a vote on the Senate floor. In a statement on February 2nd, Bennett said the bill will help support national forests as their landscapes face increased demand and called on Congress to swiftly pass this legislation to support our ski areas and recreation management on our public lands. How cold is getting too cold for pine beetles? By Stacia Stockwell of Get Wild. Take a walk in the woods in Summit County and study the bark in the pines. Chances are high that you'll spot some divots and channels carved out by none other than the infamous pine beetle. We know these little insects have a knack for wreaking havoc in our forests when the right conditions are present, and that has happened in many areas of Colorado. But one might wonder where these beetles go once the snow flies and temperatures plummet. What happens to the pine beetle during the winter? There are many different types of pine beetles that burrow in the bark of forests across the West, including the mountain pine beetle, spruce beetle, and the less common lodgepole pine beetle. 
The mountain pine beetle is one of the more common in Colorado. It's native to our state and most often finds its home in ponderosa, lodgepole, and limber pine trees. We often pay more attention to these coleopteran insects in the summer, as we tend to do with most sorts of bugs, and they unfortunately have garnered more attention in recent decades because of their destructive forces in our forests. Pine beetles like to burrow into the bark of pine trees and lay eggs within the bark of the tree. When enough beetles do this to a tree, the tiny creatures suck up all the nutrients without leaving any for the tree. Eventually, this kills the tree. Climate change doesn't help. When warmer temperatures linger for longer, it gives the beetles more time to do their destructive work. And according to recent climate studies, Colorado is getting both warmer and drier. But of course, winter still hits hard in Colorado's high country. So what happens to those beetles in the cold and snowy months of the year? Insects in winter don't usually get along, but pine beetles are surprisingly hardy creatures. They don't flee in winter. Instead, they stay hidden inside the trees, usually in their larval stage. Like many insects, pine beetles have a sort of antifreeze system to get them through the winter. Alcohol accumulates in their bodies to keep them from freezing. Cold will eventually kill any insect, but not all of them will succumb at the same temperatures. According to the U.S. Forest Service, studies have indicated that temperatures from minus 13 to minus 31 degrees in midwinter can kill mountain pine beetles, but that's not a set number. It depends on many factors, including the stage of life the beetle is in. Tucked away under flakes of bark, these beetles often survive the winter and continue their burrowing as spring melts into summer. When warmer temperatures linger into late fall, it gives the beetles more time to gnaw away at the life of these trees. The Forest Service estimates that since 1996, about 3.4 million acres of lodgepole and ponderosa pine forests have exhibited mountain pine beetle caused tree mortality. All these dead trees, of course, create an immense amount of fuel for wildfires to rip through in the heat of the summer. Those little insects that are currently hiding deep inside the pine trees are part of a larger series of events that threaten our natural environment. While preventative treatments exist that can help trees fend off pine beetle infestations, the only real cure is nature herself, and it'll take one heck of a cold snap to do that. This winter, don't just pray for snow. Pray for Cold too, by Stasia Stockwell, who is a Breckenridge local and avid backcountry skier. A true mountain dweller, she feels most at home in the Alpine. She writes primarily for the outdoor adventure realm with the desire to connect readers from all backgrounds with nature in a meaningful way. Turning to the business section, Vale Health 
is facing a mounting workforce, financial headwinds as it continues to grow services by Allie Longwell of the Vale Daily. Vale, despite the challenges, and there have been challenges of the past few years in healthcare, Vale Health is forging ahead. After three years of a pandemic, it's time to emerge and try to get back to some sense of normalcy, said Will Cook, Vale Health's president and CEO, at the annual State of Vale Health on Tuesday, February 7th. In recapping Vale Health's fiscal 2022, Cook highlighted internal and external obstacles, predominantly regarding his workforce and financial situation, and celebrated some of its achievements as he looked ahead to the future. Despite all the external headwinds and despite all the internal challenges for all intents and purposes, I think it's been a better year for us, Cook said. Over its last fiscal year, the hospital continued its expansion, particularly with a focus on new facilities and behavioral health. Some of the cited accomplishments included the opening of two new facilities, one in Summit County and one in Roaring Fork Valley, receiving the entitlements and breaking ground on the pre-court healing center. It's 28-bed inpatient facility expected to open in 2025. Putting the finishing touches on the Uyghurs Mental Health Clinic, which will offer intensive outpatient behavioral health programming, and starting work on an employee housing site in Edwards. In addition to expanding its behavioral health facilities, Vale Health's wholly owned subsidiary, Eagle Valley Behavioral Health, also became the state's first new community health center in nearly three decades, a designation that opens up the organization to new funding opportunities. Additionally, as Vail Health expands its services in neighboring Summit County, Chris Lindley, the executive director of Eagle Valley Behavioral Health and chief population officer for Vail Health, said it's working with the Summit County government to become its community mental health center. What that means is we'll try to provide them with the same level of support, collaboration that we're doing up here, but working with all of their nonprofits down there, Lindley said. It won't take anything away from here, what we're doing, but hopefully we can share the lessons we've learned here with that community as well. People and culture. Building and sustaining its workforce was a primary topic of Tuesday's presentation, with the challenges being omnipresent and finding solutions being one of Vale Health's top priorities. As Cook put it, Vale Health's people and culture will always be our North Star. This, he added, is even more critical given the current workforce environment, both locally and nationally. 
In an environment of great resignation, one in five leaving the healthcare industry and all the challenges associated with burnout, it really is now more than ever important to focus on our people and your culture, Cook said, adding on several instances that the pending retirement of the baby boomer generation will also have widespread impacts on healthcare. These external pressures manifested internally, creating the perfect storm, he added. Specifically, Cook called out several losses of people in key positions from the hospital. This included a spine surgeon, two urologists, three primary care physicians, and an ear, nose, and throat surgeon that took a sabbatical. For those that resigned, Cook said the reasons for leaving included daycare challenges, opportunities to sell their homes at a premium, and burnout. In total, the hospital also had 40% vacancies in key clinical positions, which had an overall financial impact. Combating workforce challenges, Cook said it had a 26% increase in labor expenses, both toward increased contract labor and benefits and compensation. Because we didn't want to hurt service levels, we had to spend $13 million more in contract labor, Cook said, adding that historically, Vail Health spends around $2 million each year on this, meaning it spent $15 million in the last fiscal year. Additionally, it spent around $8 million on increased compensation and benefits for its internal staff. And as Vail Health looks ahead, it's planning to spend $194 million on compensation and benefits, which is a $7.8 million increase year over year. One of the outward impacts of this shortage can be doctor availability. And on Tuesday, an attendee asked if the hospital envisioned this improving. I don't see it getting any better anytime soon, Cook said, highlighting not only the industry-wide workforce challenges, including the looming baby boomer retirement wave, but also local ones. Not only are there challenges associated with trying to recruit people to the mountains, but also the difficulty around recruiting specialized physicians when they can't promise the breadth and depth of experiences in a rural community like this, Cook said. Unfortunately, we can't provide every single service here. There's oftentimes not enough volume to ensure quality or enough volume to ensure cost efficiency. And increasingly, because of the shortage of providers and the one in five who have left, we've struggled to keep some of our doctors, Cook said. But for those employees, it does have. Cook advocated for further patience and understanding from the community. They've been through the ringer in the last six to 12 months, Cook said. They're working very hard. They're doing their very best. We just literally have about 20% less of what we used to have. If it was 5% less, then you wouldn't feel much of it. 
But these are significant hits we're feeling in terms of the lack of people to help us provide the kind of care and service that we want to. We will get there, though, I assure you. While Cook didn't see this problem disappearing soon, he did mention that Vail Health is working to create more pipelines to the healthcare industry, and this includes an ongoing partnership with Colorado Mountain College, as well as finding other ways to offer scholarship and internship opportunities to local high school students. Aside from compensation and benefits, addressing top issues like housing and child care remain top of mind. We're talking to a variety of daycare operators to see how we can help them address some of their challenges. We're working with the Vail Valley Foundation on their task force. We're all leaning in, but I want to make sure you know we're really investing in our people, Cook said. One of its largest housing projects is Fox Hollow in Edwards. Vail Health has put $20 million toward this to create both short and long-term housing opportunities for its staff. The parcel, located at 18 and 22 Murray Road between the Eagle Vet Clinic and the Edwards Interfaith Chapel, is owned by Breckenridge Grand Vacations, but 100% of the 87 units and 218 bedrooms will be utilized for Vail Health staff. Currently, it is set to break ground on the property in March. This project will not only almost double its employee housing from 93 total units to 180, but increase the diversity of its long-term rental opportunities for employees. Financial headwinds. In addition to rising workforce issues, Tuesday's presentation referred to 2022 as a perilous year for hospital finances. Cook said all the mounting internal and external pressures really resulted in nationwide and statewide financial difficulties for all the health systems that are out there. During the fiscal year, Cook reported that Vail Health saw a 49.3% decrease in its operating margin, alongside a 21% increase in total expenses the latter of which is predominantly related to rising labor costs as well as a 24.1% increase in supply chain expenses. All in, Cook said Vail Health broke even in fiscal year 22-ish, just a little bit around there. We had about a $60 million reduction to our reserves based on financial market performance, and we've continued to see unprecedented degradation to our own financial performance, Cook said. Looking ahead to the upcoming fiscal year, Cook said the hospital was committed to maintaining financial sustainability. We have to have the margins in order to carry out our mission, and we need to make sure we're always on 
solid financial footing, he said. While we currently are in that place because of many years of disciplined work and strategic decisions, like many of you who run your own businesses or work on other boards, this will be a hyper-focus for now as we get through some of these unprecedented external headwinds. Prioritizing health, accessibility, and affordability, looking toward the year ahead, Cook listed a number of priorities for the hospital. Those include addressing the aforementioned external headwinds, but also a continuation of its growth. Additional priorities included focusing on affordability with a focus on bringing down health insurance premiums, increasing accessibility of services, expanding orthopedic services, and focusing on overall population health. We're trying to get upstream at every turn, Cook said. Your best shot at beating COVID, at beating whatever comes after COVID, at living your fullest life, at beating all the other diseases that ultimately we're running from as we get older in life, is to really focus on your baseline health, he added. Pay attention to your diet. Get some exercise. Get out in the sunshine. Enjoy these beautiful views. See your primary care physician on a regular basis. Make sure you hit your screenings for whether or not it's mammograms or colonoscopies. All the things. And as Vale Health looks ahead, it will continue to stay rooted in the community partnerships that have advanced it to where it is today. In its 2022 fiscal year, Vale Health gave around $25 million to local community initiatives and has committed $200 million to behavioral health in the community. What makes this valley great? besides the beautiful mountains and the outdoors and all the things that draw us here. It's this common bond, constantly trying to do what's right for the Valley, Cook said. At the end of the day, as it prioritizes affordability, accessibility, population health and sustainability, Vale Health is just focusing on moving ahead. We really look forward to from my perspective anyway, getting over these sort of current external headwinds and this perfect storm that's brewing and trying to get back to life that's less stressful and a life where we're not constantly navigating pandemics and dealing with all those things, Cook said. Officials convene. Steamboat considers lawsuit as frustrations with the U.S. Postal Service continue by John F. Russell of the Steamboat Pilot. After meeting with the U.S. Postal Service last week, residents and government officials are looking for new approaches to resolve delivery problems in Steamboat Springs and other Colorado Mountain communities. It's just sporadic, said Susie Allen, a South Route resident who has not seen regular deliveries to her mailbox since early December. They keep saying it's getting better, but I haven't seen it. Allen is not alone. She said her neighbors who live in the Catamount area received their Christmas cards in the mail last week. 
This has been December, January, and February. So it's been over two months, Alan said. It's not getting better. James Boxrud, a communications specialist with the Postal Service, said that despite the continued flow of complaints coming from the community, there are efforts underway to improve service and get residents their mail. It sounded like we were getting pretty close to getting all the mail caught up, if not caught up, on Sunday. But who knows what difference a day makes, he said. It could be another nightmare today, or they could be doing good. He said that the Postal Service has brought in outside people to help the short-staffed office in Steamboat get caught up with the mail. He said the Postal Service is also still seeking employees to work in Steamboat Springs, but didn't have any updates on where the local post office was in the hiring process. The problems in Steamboat Springs and other mountain communities have gotten so bad that on Tuesday, February 7th, City Manager Gary Souter said he would present to City Council the idea of joining a lawsuit led by Crested Butte. I just wanted to bring it to their attention. That it's out there, Souter said. I told the town manager of Crested Butte it of Crested Butte, I'll bring it up on Tuesday night and I'll get back to her and let her know. Souter said he wasn't sure how city council would react to the proposal and the council members would have to weigh the cost with the possible outcome. The cost would be between $25,000 and $35,000, Souter said, and could be split among seven other municipalities. Souter is also hoping to find out if City Council would want to cap the amount that Steamboat Springs might contribute. I'm not holding up high hopes, but it might be a way to get their attention. I don't know what the courts could do if we sued the post office, Souter said. It's hard to imagine what the courts could mandate. Do the courts say, okay, hire more workers? The issue in Steamboat Springs have also garnered the attention of Route County Commissioners, as well as the Office of Representative Jonah Goose and Senators Michael Bennett and John Hickenlooper. Those groups were part of a meeting with Boxrud last week that Commissioner Tim Corrigan described as disappointing. It was certainly an opportunity for those of us here locally to express to the Postal Service our complete and utter dissatisfaction with the service levels that they provide, Corrigan said. I was quite disappointed and registered my disappointment in fairly stern language. Their responses were totally inadequate and primarily amounted to excuse-making for why they're unable to provide the services that they've required by their own policies to provide. Corrigan felt the post service, which sent a public relations person rather than a supervisory management position to the meeting, came with a long list of excuses for why it has been unable to provide reasonable service. We've heard a lot about how they're unable to hire and retain postal service. And of course, that has a lot to do with their pay scale, Corrigan said. 
We heard a lot about how they're unable to hire and retain contract delivery contractors. And again, that has a lot to do with the structure of remuneration for those contractors. He said he sees the Postal Service's problems in Steamboat as a management problem. Everybody struggles with these issues, but the difference here is that this is not a private business or a restaurant where you may need to wait 30 minutes to get a table or you may need to stand in line to receive some other service. This is a function of the government of the United States that they are obligated to provide. It's not as if they don't have the resources to get it done. This is just a failure of commitment by Postal Service Management to address these issues on any kind of a timely manner. Corrigan said he was concerned at the start of the winter because the Colorado Department of Transportation was struggling to find employees, but was amazed at how CDOT addressed the issue and continued to keep the roads open and clear. This is a critical piece of public infrastructure, Corrigan said of the Postal Service. I mean, the county runs a couple of water and sewer systems. And we have those operational. We have to do it. We plow hundreds of miles of road. And it's not an option for us not to do it. We have to do it, whatever it takes. Allen said she has had some success going into the Steamboat Springs Post Office, standing in line and begging the mail clerks to see if they can find her deliveries. She said she was able to get a couple of packages and last week got eight letters that had been sent recently. At 2 p.m. Tuesday afternoon, Allen texted this message to the Steamboat Pilot and today celebrating something that many people take for granted. FYI, we got mail, Alan wrote. Woohoo! From the environment, Summit County Commissioners are poised to sh change the price model for rural development right transfers, realigning with modern market trends by Robert Tan. The Summit Board of County Commissioners appears poised to up the price for 20 acres of land purchased through a government program aimed at redirecting growth and development to more populous areas in order to protect the backcountry. Known as a transferable development right, the program allows private property owners, typically in rural areas, to sell their development rights to more urban areas better equipped to handle the density. Backcountry areas are often in sensitive environmental locations that are located above timberline locations, ridge lines, said Suzanne Pugsley, community development planner for the county. And landowners of these claims have the right to develop them for res residential purposes. But development on these claims could obstruct valued view sheds and recreational access to National Forest System land. 
As a remedy, the county, along with other local governments, adopted the Transferable Development Right Program to more appropriately accommodate that development by creating government-run banks where rights can be bought and sold, Pugsley said. Each right consists of 20 acres of land, the cost of which is based on the median sale price of those 20 acres over the past years, according to Pugsley. But current prices are outdated. For example, the cost of land purchased through the banks of the Joint Upper Blue, partly run by the town of Breckenridge, and county-wide Upper Blue, run by the county, are based on the median sale price since 2000. A separate county-run account for the 10 Mile and Snake River basins is based on the median since 2007. For the joint Upper Blue and countywide Upper Blue, that translates to a cost of $95,820 per 20 acres for the 10 Mile and Snake River basins. It means a cost of $65,890. Those prices do not reflect the current values of such land, Pugsley said, which has increased sustainably in recent years. A report by the Colorado-based real estate organization, Land Title Guarantee Company, shows the price of vacant land in Summit County has nearly doubled since 2020, going from more than 340 $4,000 to just over $666,000 in 2022. To accommodate this increase, Pugsley recommended the commission commissioners base land prices off the median sale price of the last seven years for all its transferable development right bank accounts. This would raise the price of 20 acres of land to $237,070 for the countywide Upper Blue account and to $102,565 for the 10 Mile and Snake River Basins account. By raising the sale price, Pugsley said the county can avoid devaluing land which could disincentivize property owners from selling. Breckenridge's town council has already signaled it will make those same adjustments for its joint upper blue bank, according to both Pugsley and Mark Truckee, Breckenridge's community development director. Commissioner Josh Blanchard asked county staff why they've reported a slowdown in the number of transferable development rights transactions since the program began and questioned if a price change might affect that. Pugsley said much of the program is over 20 years old and said much of the rural land rights have already been sold, leading to roughly 2,400 acres of land protected in the Upper Blue Basin, for example. Truckee added that early on, we just had more interest in the program. Both Blanchard and Commissioner Tamara Pogue signaled they support the price change.
which will likely be made through a joint resolution with Breckenridge later this month. As public officials applaud, some anglers are protesting the Blue Valley Land Exchange over concerns about losing access to a prized fishing spot by Ryan Spencer. Every couple of weeks, Austin Eastman will wake up early to drive from his home in Breckenridge about 45 minutes north to a pull-off in Grand County that overlooks a bend in the Blue River. From the top of a steep ledge, Eastman often looks down on the river to observe the conditions and see who else is there, and then he'll slip into his waders, climb down the footpath that skirts the cliffside, and trudge through the river with his rod to find the best spot to fish. It's a super, super unique piece of water, Eastman said. The structure of the water is just crazy different compared to anything else in the immediate area. You'll have parts of the water that are a few inches deep, and then you'll step over and it'll be 10 feet deep. He said he visited the spot at least 30 times last year in all seasons. There's nowhere else really like that on the Blue River. But hike-in access to this section of the river could soon become off-limits to local anglers. The public parcel is one of several scattered across Summit and Grant, Grant counties that are part of a land exchange agreement with Blue Valley Ranch. On January 16th, the Bureau of Land Management, which is part of the U.S. Interior Department, issued a record of decision approving the exchange. Blue Valley Ranch first proposed some form of the land swap in 2001 to address the checkerboard nature of ownership in the area. As part of the deal, the federal government will convey nine parcels totaling 1,489 acres to Blue Valley Ranch, while the ranch will transfer nine parcels of private land totaling 1,830 acres to public ownership. Blue Valley Ranch has also agreed to provide Summit County with $600,000 for new open space acquisitions, cover the costs of river restoration work for a three-quarter mile section of the Blue River near its confluence with the Colorado River, and pay for the creation of the Confluence Recreation Area with more than two miles of new walking trails and wheelchair-accessible fishing platforms. For those who float the river, a permanent seasonal takeout and rest stop near the Spring Creek River Bridge will be constructed, with another rest stop three miles downstream from the bridge as well. The exchange will also result in more than a mile and a half of hike-in access to the Blue River that is currently inaccessible except by floating. The exchange has seen wide support from government officials, including both of Colorado senators, both 
the Summit County and Grand County Commissioners, and those at the Bureau of Land Management. Meanwhile, some local residents and outdoors groups like the Colorado River Confluence Chapter of Trouts Unlimited have also come out in support of the exchange. Still, others have expressed their opposition to the exchange, including the advocacy group Colorado Wild Public Lands and those like Eastman, who regularly recreate, recreate in the areas that are currently public. It's been a big concern of mine, Eastman said of the exchange. The fishing there is extremely good, but it's also extremely technical. Unfortunately, it's really one of the only weightable sections of the lower Blue River. Though the Bureau of Land Management has issued the record of decision approving the land exchange, it has not been finalized just yet. When the Bureau issued that document, a 45-day protest period began, allowing those opposed to the exchange to submit comments through March 2nd. Well-loved lands. Colorado Wild Public Lands has been a leading voice in the opposition to the land exchange for a number of years and is among those submitting protests. The nonprofit, which touts its experience with public lands management, follows and provides feedback on land exchanges happening across the state. Graham Ward, a staff member with the advocacy group, said the Colorado Wild Public Lands has several concerns about the exchange, one of which is that it was proposed by a wealthy landowner, not by the Bureau of Land Management itself. The exchange is only happening to appease the private landowner here, Ward said. It seems like something that's trying to fix a problem that doesn't exist. Congress created laws to allow public-private land exchanges with the intention of helping the Bureau of Land Management and federal government base better manage its lands. But the land exchange process is most often used by private landowners to meet their own goals, he said. While landowners will often propose a deal that seems pretty sweet to the Bureau of Land Management or U.S. Forest Service, Ward said land exchanges can trade away lands that are already used and well-loved for something that sounds good but isn't guaranteed. When it comes to the Blue Valley Ranch land exchange in particular, Ward said, Colorado Wild Public Lands has concerns that the exchange will result in privatization of an almost 15-mile stretch of land along the river. We think it's kind of a shame to see this beautiful stretch of water become entirely privatized, he said, and that's the heart of it. Colorado Public Lands has also voiced frustration with the access to documents related to the exchange. Ward said the group filed a public records request for a draft of the binding land exchange in July of 2021, only to receive 
91 fully redacted pages. There is a practice of withholding information on these exchanges as long as possible from the public, Ward said. We didn't receive that full version of it until four days before the decision. Additional public access. Support for the land exchange, though, is widespread. In tweets last month, Senator Michael Bennett said the approval of the Blue Valley Land Exchange is great news for Colorado anglers, rafters, and all advocates of the Blue River. And Senator John Hickenlooper echoed that statement. The Grand County Board of Commissioners, meanwhile, applauded the approval in a January news release calling attention to the amenities that Blue Valley Ranch has promised, particularly the new recreation area to be constructed at the Blue River's confluence with the Colorado River. The release states that Blue Valley Ranch is expected to invest over $2 million at no cost to the taxpayer as part of the exchange. The Summit County Board of Commissioners also voiced support for the exchange in a news release issued last month. And in an interview, Commissioner Elizabeth Lawrence said, at the end of the day, we're talking about additional public access to the outdoors. Lawrence said the project aligns with all the goals of the Summit County Commission related to increasing outdoor accessibility for the public. Pointing to a pullout near the Spring Creek River Bridge and the additional rest area three miles downstream that will be added as part of the exchange, she said she doesn't believe it's true that the exchange will privatize land along a 15-mile stretch of the river. Lawrence also shot back against claims that the land exchange process hasn't been forthcoming with the public, noting the exchange has been underway for well over a decade. I don't think there has been a lack of transparency, she said. This has been going on for a long time. As for the public lands that will become private as part of the exchange, Lawrence said that those parcels are in good hands. She said that the Blue River Rally is a good land steward who will protect and restore habitat in the area. I think we can't ignore what Blue River Valley does in terms of preservation and restoration, Lawrence said. They work incredibly hard so that the land and waters there are pristine, perfect habitat, meaning that area is rife for wildlife. As for the loss of the parcel of public hike-in access to fishing, Lawrence said the land exchange will result in additional hike-in fishing access with Blue Valley Ranch compromising restoration work that could make those areas gold medal trout fishing. joining us for the Summit News. My name is Lainey Bueller. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org.
or by calling 303-786-7777.